welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness and well-being and I'm delighted that you're here. Hello everyone, welcome to Wikipedia. I am Mickey, and today on the podcast I speak to Dr. Richard Johnson. He's a physician who specialises in kidney health, metabolic disease and the impact of fructose on overall metabolic health. So such a pleasure to talk to Rick, he was such an awesome guy and uh, we talked all about how he developed his interest in fructose how fructose impacts blood pressure and the types of foods and drinks are most detrimental, i.e. do we have to avoid fruit if we are metabolically healthy, the impact that these have on just chronic disease, metabolic health in general, and we also talk about Rick's new book titled Nature Wants Us to Be Fat and the importance of something which he calls a survival switch, which was a mechanism that kept us alive for thousands of years but in the modern environment now drives metabolic disease. That might sound super clinical but Rick does a great job of translating that scientific knowledge into really practical applications and in language that anyone can understand. Dr. Richard Johnson was formerly the Chief of the Renal Division in Hypertension at the University of Colorado for nine years. He's a physician that is trained in internal medicine, infectious disease and nephrology. Along with having an active clinical practice, he is a widely cited NIH funded scientist who has lectured in over 40 countries and has authored three books, The Sugar Fix, The Fat Switch and his new book, as I mentioned, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. Dr. Johnson has a special interest in the role of sugar and especially fructose and its byproduct uric acid in driving metabolic and kidney disorders. I first came across Dr. Rick Johnson's work prior to the Fizz conference here in Auckland in 2014 and I had the pleasure of listening to him in person as he came along and spoke at that conference and he has just been such a driver in this field of metabolic health and just how important uric acid is. Uh, which is not often talked about with regards to obesity, chronic disease and, and metabolic conditions. We can find Dr. Richard Johnson over on his website, drrichardjohnson.com, which I've got links to in the show notes. And we've also linked to his book, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, which is available over on Amazon. Highly recommend anyone who is interested in this area to grab a copy of that book. And before we get into the podcast, I'd just like to remind you that the best way that you can support us is jump on your favorite podcast platform, hit subscribe, share with your mates and get the good word out. That would be amazing. And also, if you are after a sweet deal of protein powder, good green vitality, which is what I take every day, if you want to be like me, head over to Newzest, www.newzest.co.nz and use the code MICKEY20, M-I-K-K-I-2-0, to get a sweet 20% off your order. That is awesome, team. All right, grab your pens out and take some notes because you'll want to capture the information that Rick shares in today's podcast. 
don't know it, I'll, I'll just tell you. <laughs> but um, but I can, you know, I, I, I've been studying uric acid probably longer than just about anyone else because <laughs> it's gone on for over 20 years. So, you know, and uh, so I have a pretty deep knowledge, but um, it, I'm always learning new stuff too. So it's, it's uh, I'm quite uh, open to the, to new ideas. So. That is awesome, Rick, because, of course, when I was reading your book, um, there are a number of places where you posit an idea of what the relationship could be with uric acid and fructose in a certain health condition. But I also, of course, noted that you were like, this is a state of the research. We don't we we don't have a good understanding of how it might uh, influence human health. But his mechanistic data and and hypothesis generating data like you you were very good at i think yeah. positing where we were what with, we know and what we don't well i i would be very yeah. uh you know i'll try to be careful uh in this pro, uh podcast to make sure that we know the limits of what we're of what we're believing in or interpreting and i mean there's always there's the science awesome. and then there's the interpretation and and we have yeah. to be we do have to be careful but uh but I do think it's a pretty pretty interesting topic so i know, and i and I absolutely love that actually so um let's kick off Rick so you're obviously you're an expert in kidney health that's sort of how you got into the area yet of course you've got such a deep knowledge in and around metabolic disease and obesity, of course they're related. When you got into the field, did you expect that you would end up talking and, and doing your research on the things which we're going to be talking about today? No, absolutely not. So uh, my boards are in infectious disease and kidney disease. And so initially I was more interested in uh, inflammation and the role of inflammation in the white cell and kidney damage and, um, you know, infections and kidney disease. But I follow uh, I follow my curiosity, and uh, and you know when you find when you make a discovery, you know, and it leads to another question, I I will just keep going after that and following my uh, each question until I get to to the answer, or at least uh, to try to find that answer. So it, it, you know, one thing takes me to another. Yeah. So when I um studied nutrition. Uh, back in the late 90s, they, you know, when we talked about fructose, which is a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, it was always in light of the potential benefits of having fructose over glucose because it didn't raise insulin to the same extent or at all, because of course the pathway with which we metabolize it is different. So when you sort of, I suppose, begun your research journey what was your understanding of fructose and how did that change what was it that sort of changed that for you well i never was one of those people who uh thought fructose was good but i have to say that i really hadn't been studying fructose and my interest in fructose began when i realized that it was a carbohydrate that actually could raise uric acid cuz i had been raised that uh, and taught that the main way uric acid is, you increase uric acid is through, you know, uh, alcohol and purines, purines being, you know, uh, commonly present in meats and things like that. So I wasn't, I really hadn't been tr uh, taught 
that sugar uh, was a cause of, of, of gout. Uh, but when I was reading, when we were studying uric acid and I was trying to figure out why, uh, you know, what was driving uric acid up in our population, I realized that sugar was a mechanism for raising uric acid, that it was due to the fructose component. And I, mm. I also re realized that sugar was well known as a precipitating cause of gout, uh, going all the way back to uh, Sir William Osler. And so, you know, it was known for a long time. I just that I didn't really know it. And that kind of sparked my interest because, you know, I was finding uric acid was a bad player in conditions like hypertension. And what is it about fructose or sugar uh, that raises uric acid well above where it should be? First of all, what is uric acid? Let's sort of start there. And what's its sort of role in, our, in determining our health? Yeah, so uric acid is a waste product that's generated from the breakdown of DNA and RNA and ATP. So it's a nitrogen-rich, small chemical compound and then uh, it, when it's generated, um, we, we have to really get rid of it because uh, we can't really metabolize it very well. There, there are a lot of animals that can break it down further. They have an enzyme called uricase, but humans lost that enzyme. And so when we make uric acid, it's kind of an end product. It's like the, the final product from breaking down nucleotides. And so just like uh, we get rid of urea, we have to find ways to get rid of uric acid. And so we excrete it in our kidneys, uh, through our kidneys and the urine, and we uh, excrete it in our gut. And so uh, most people were thinking of it as a waste product that, you know, when it builds up in your blood, it can create a problem because it's poorly soluble. And so uh, when it crystallizes, uh, if the concentrations get high, it can crystallize. And so, for example, um, it's, uh, was, it can cause kidney stones because if the concentrations get high in the urine, especially if the urine becomes acidic, then the uh, crystals really form easily. And so it can form uric acid crystals and kidney stones. And it was originally identified by a guy who was trying to figure out what was the cause of a kidney stone. Mm -hmm. And then it also can crystallize in the joints. And what it does there, it causes this uh, arthritis, you know, this painful arthritis we know as gout. And so mm. gout's been around for, for ever. And, you know, we, we've, uh, we realized that it's from a high uric acid and it was linked years ago with, you know, drinking alcohol, eating a lot of rich foods that uh, contain these purines and sweet foods, port wine that has sugar and alcohol is a great great way of doing it. And so uh, most people have thought of uric acid as the cause of gout, that it's, um, you know, increased by certain foods. Because it's mm -hmm. excreted by the kidney, it goes up in kidney disease as well. And so, mm -hmm. it, you know, people with kidney disease, and since I'm a kidney doctor, uh, a lot of people with kidney disease have high uric acids and, and then they can are at risk for gout. And so, you know, so it's thought of as, you know, it's a waste product. But a lot of people were thinking that, well, if the uric acid is high in the blood, the main risk is gout and kidney stones, but there was an association uh, of high uric acid in the blood with, you know, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, uh, kidney disease, and all these different conditions and, you know, metabolic syndrome. And, and, uh, and everyone was saying, well, is it because the uric acid is high 
because you do have obesity, maybe people who are obese are eating too much of these rich foods or uh, people with kidney disease, they're retaining the uric acid because it's excreted by the kidney. Uh, high blood pressure, maybe there's an association of the high uric acid with, you know, some, maybe people with high blood pressure have some problems getting rid of uric acid in their urine as well. And so a lot of people were thinking that the uric acid is high in these conditions as a consequence of these conditions. So, you know, you have a high uric, uh, if you're obese, you tend to have an increased risk for gout. It isn't that gout or high uric acid increases your risk for obesity. It's the reverse. And so this is kind of the way people were thinking. And what happened that made me so interested in this whole topic was we were trying to figure out what was the cause of high blood pressure. And everyone knew that in high blood pressure, there's a problem with the kidneys trying to get rid of salt. So there is a kidney mm -hmm. problem. And so if the kidneys are having trouble getting rid of salt, then you start retaining the salt and it seems to be associated with the rise in blood pressure. And everyone was kind of focusing on hormones and vasoactive factors and, you know, what could be our genetic causes, you know, but um, I was wondering if there could be an acquired cause of hypertension, that maybe the kidneys were normally could excrete salt, pretty well, but over time, there's something happened to them that would cause them to not get rid of the salt. And so mm. uh, when I was studying this, um, I realized that low-grade kidney damage, one that did not make the kidney function test look change at all, they were basically the same. But, but if I created low-grade kidney damage to the kidney, very, very low-grade, that the kidneys started to hold on to salt and the animal's would develop salt-sensitive hypertension. And then, mm. I, so then I go, okay, well, what could cause subtle damage to the kidneys? And there was all this data that uric acid, you know, is high in people with hypertension. And I knew that uric acid could form crystals. And there were some reports that, you know, uh, that patients with gout have uric acid crystals in their kidney itself. So I said, aha, maybe uric acid crystals could be causing that low-grade damage to the kidney that makes you hold on to salt. So we mm. took animals, laboratory animals, uh, they, they actually, like lab rats, they have this enzyme uricase, so they can degrade uric acid, unlike us. So I said, okay, well, I'm just going to block that enzyme, so raise their uric acid sort of like a human and see what happens. And when we did that, the animals became hypertensive. And I go, oh, oh my God. Raising yeah, yeah. uric acid is raising their blood pressure? How can that be? Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was like uh, 1999 or 2000 when that happened. It was a long time ago. And um, and Marilda Mazzale, who was this uh, Brazilian fellow working with me, she, you know, when she came to me, she said, you won't believe it. These animals are, dry, are developing hypertension. And so I, I didn't believe it. I mean, I was skeptical. And, and yeah. so I had her uh, do many, many more animals. And it was just incontrovertible. It was, it was these animals were developing hypertension. And, mm. um, and so we thought it was the crystals. But when we looked in their kidneys, there were no crystals. So it was mm. working somehow independently of crystals. And that was the beginning. And that was when we realized that soluble uric acid, just high uric acid could do something that could raise blood pressure. And, um, yeah. and, and, and it was, we started putting uric acid on, 
on cells. We could show that it could cause the release of, of things that could cause uh, constriction of blood vessels. And we, we realized that this was that, you know, that we had discovered something that was potentially interesting. Mm-hmm. And at that point, there was a young doctor, Daniel Feig, who came mm-hmm. to my office and he was a pediatrician and he was studying children with hypertension. And uh, one of the things that we discovered when we were doing our animal studies was that in the very beginning, when we raised the uric acid, these animals developed high blood pressure that we could fix by lowering their uric acid. So it was, it was uric acid dependent. But over time, they started getting the subtle injury to their kidneys. And once that happened, then, then you could lower the uric acid and they stayed hypertensive. So it seemed like mm-hmm. there was an initiation and then there was a, pers- yeah. a maintenance. And so the initiation was driven by uric acid. And then the maintenance was driven by the, uh, low-grade kidney damage that the uric acid did. <laughs> so uh, when, when Dan came to my office and he says, well, I've got adolescents with hypertension. And I thought to myself, well, this is like the perfect group because uh, if there's a period of time where you have normal, uh, I mean, where you, where the kidneys aren't diseased, this would be mm-hmm. the group. And uh, and then so they should, their blood pressure should respond uh, if we lower the uric acid. And so uh, so the first step was, you know, are, is their uric acid levels high? And so he mm-hmm. said, yeah, let me go check. And he came back about two months later with, uh, you know, over 150 pa- patients where he'd measured the uric acid. And it was a, a line. The higher the uric acid, the higher the blood pressure. The R value was wow. unbelievably tight. I mean, it was much better than I saw in my in my rats. And this was human yeah. data. So, uh, so Dan went and got a, a got a grant from the NIH to see about lowering the uric acid in these people and uh, see if it could help. And these kids had never, you know, none of them had ever had any kind of medication at all. None of them yes. had ever been on a medicine, period. And uh, we randomized them in a double-blind crossover trial to lower the uric acid. And uh, when we did that, we had an unbelievable finding. Uh, in 95% of the 90% plus of those who we lowered the uric acid to under five, they became normotensive without any other drug. And uh, only 5% of the placebo group did. And we published this in the JAMA, um, yeah. and it was considered one of the top uh, cardiovascular articles of the year way back when. And and since then, you know, we've been on this track thinking to ourselves that, oh my gosh, this could be important. And one of the things that was interesting is um, these kids that were developing hypertension also were overweight and they had um, uh, insulin resistance. A lot of them were, had features of metabolic syndrome and many yeah. of them were eating sugar. And, um, and so we started giving sugar to animals uh, and we could show that they developed hypertension as well. And, mm. um, and that, uh, and when we, we, and actually there's data in people that if you give fructose to a person, their blood pressure goes up within 10 minutes. But if you give glucose mm-hmm. to a person, it does not. And yeah. uh, we went on and did further studies showing this. And we did studies in humans um, as well. But what we found is that when we gave fructose to animals, that they uh, developed hypertension to metabolic syndrome and so and high uric acid. So what we did is we then uh, lowered the uric acid uh, with, with a drug. And when we did that, their blood pressure came down just as we expected. 
Oh, amazing. So, Rick, when Dr. Dan came to you with his children that had hypertension, was that one of the first times that the idea that children could even develop hypertension was sort of out there? Because I remember, again, when I was studying, you know, we talked about type 2 diabetes being adult onset diabetes. We talked about hypertension being like an adult problem. But of course, more and more, we were beginning to get these cases of children developing these metabolic issues. So was it quite widespread, this idea that children could get hypertension, or was this a relatively sort of new understanding? Well, a long time ago, and I guess you you and I both know this, but uh, when, when I was in training, type 1 diabetes uh, was usually youth onset diabetes, and adult mm. onset diabetes was type 2. And it was thought that type 2 of diabetes was associated with obesity and insulin resistance, and there was something that occurred in adults. And type 1 diabetes was this disease where you got uh, lost your, your insulin production from a, probably a viral and then an autoimmune uh, reaction in your pancreas. Um, mm. But what's happened is uh, more and more children are developing obesity and more and more children are developing type 2 diabetes. And the same thing's true for high blood pressure. So mm. when, we, when I was little, uh, when I was in medical school, uh, you know, hypertension in children was usually from kidney damage or uh, some kind of hereditary disease or a tumor like Wilms tumor or something that was uh, causing problems uh, often with the kidney. But uh, nowadays, about half of the children presenting with hypertension have regular essential primary hypertension. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's usually associated with obesity and metabolic syndrome. And Dan actually did do the study. I, I should have explained this better. But when he was, Dr. Dan was doing these uh, studies with children, he actually figured out which ones had, uh, you know, a hereditary form or a primary form or, or you know, like uh, due to a kidney disease or whatever, and those that had essential hypertension. And I'm only talking about the essential hypertension. The uric acid levels were not that high in the in the kids that had known causes of hypertension. But in the kids with primary or essential hypertension, that's where the uric acid levels were high. And when we did yeah. the trial, we only picked children with essential hypertension. And, and, yeah. and that was the group where lowering uric acid was incredible. And when we, yeah. uh, when we did the animals and we gave sugar and we lowered uric acid, we also had that fall in blood pressure. But then we had another yeah. big discovery. Yeah. And that was that uh, not only did blood pressure correct, but we, we could block weight gain and, and uh, the rise in triglycerides and, and, mm. uh, and, and the increase in, in liver fat and all these things that are associated with metabolic syndrome were also improved. And that was like, what? You could, year, yeah. what? You know, and then we started realizing, and then when we went back and looked at this trials like that Dan ran, we found that lowering uric acid actually uh, reduced weight gain in those studies too. So it was sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, what do we got going on here? And then, mm. then we started looking at, not just me, but many people were started looking at the relationship of uric acid to high blood pressure and to obesity and all these things. And here's the, here's the get. Here's what's really cool, Mickey. You would think, you know, if uric acid goes up as a consequence of obesity or as a consequence of diabetes, then you would expect the diabetes to occur first 
and then the uric acid to go up. But yeah. uh, in all these studies that have been done, the high, you, if you have a high uric acid, it predicts the development of obesity. It predicts the development of hypertension. It predicts the development of, di of uh, diabetes. And so what, mm. what happens is we even took people who were their only abnormality that we could tell was a high uric acid. They, they were lean, mm. normal weight, no kidney disease. Uh, normal triglycerides, no uh, problem with their blood glucose. They all look normal. But five years later, they have a dramatically increased risk for developing all those consequences, uh, high obesity, diabetes. So the high uric acid precedes and predicts uh, the development of these conditions. So that sort of started me going, oh, my gosh, this is like a complete change in thinking. Because yeah. everyone was thinking of gout as, you know, and uric acid as being secondary to these things. But could yeah. it be important? So that it was at that point that we started saying, well, okay, well, fructose raises uric acid. And how does mm -hmm. it do it? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what's interesting is, you know, when fructose gets metabolized, you know, the fructose breaks down. And, and it breaks down like a calorie. And it's like all... Things like glucose breaks down. All these guys break down when, you, you know, you, you break down the amino acids and, or the proteins into amino acids. And, and so everything's kind of like nutritionally metabolized. But mm -hmm. when you break down fructose, the uric acid doesn't come out of the fructose molecule at all. It's not from that pathway. It's mm -hmm. generated as a side chain reaction. And there's a, there's a side chain reaction that occurs with fructose that's really unique to fructose. And that is that um, there's this consumption of uh, ATP. And mm -hmm. ATP is, you know, kind of our, our, uh, our main type of energy we have in our cells. So our mitochondria make all this ATP and we use the ATP to, to drive up. It's our energy. It drives, uh, drives what we do. You need mm -hmm. ATP to think, talk, walk, run, <laughs> everything. Yeah. So yeah. ATP is kind of the key. And if you don't have ATP, you're basically dead. I mean, ATP is critical yeah. for life. And when we breathe oxygen, the oxygen's used a lot of it to help make ATP in the mitochondria. And when we're making eating food, we're using it to generate ATP. So ATP is kind of the key thing. But uh, yeah. when you metabolize food, when you burn food, you do, you do use some energy to make energy. But what happens mm. with fructose is uh, it, it consumes ATP very, very quickly because the enzyme that breaks fructose down is completely unregulated and works very fast. So when it sees mm. fructose, it drops ATP like that. And so unlike glucose or other nutrients, the, the ATP levels drop in the cell very cutely with like a soft drink or anything, of, and it's been shown in people. And then when that ATP level falls, what's interesting is there's a series of reactions that is peculiar to this, this uh, fructose that uh, leads to a persistent low ATP level. And the way it okay. works is the uh, there's a drop in ATP and phosphate, and that stimulates an enzyme that sweeps away the AM, the uh, degradation of ATP products so that it, they can't be re regenerated to ATP. So there's a substance called AMP 
that normally gets regenerated to ATP, but it's removed uh, to make uric acid. So the uric acid is part of this sweeping system that removes, as ATP is degraded, uh, it's kind of removed to make uric acid. And then the uric mm. acid causes um, a stress to the mitochondria. It's a type of oxidative stress. It's, uh, yeah. And that uh, when that happens, it drops the ability of the mitochondria to produce energy. So they, they mitochondria make less ATP. And so now you've consumed ATP. You're not regenerating it as fast. And you're also blocking the production of ATP. And it, it, there's a few other ways it works too. So it's it's like hits it five or six ways. And the net effect is that the ATP levels stay low in the cell. And when that happens, the energy that you're eating, instead of going to make ATP, is now being shunted to stored energy. And, and basically mm. ATP is your immediate energy. And guess what your stored energy is? Fat. Adipose fat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Rick, does that mean that when we have fructose alongside the other nutrients, that the other nutrients are more likely to be stored because of the consequence of fructose has at that time. So if you have a soda with a burger, for example, you're more likely to store the burger energy because of the unique effects of fructose. Absolutely. So that's exactly how it works. So the fructose ch changes the cell so that, mm. it, that it activates. So that any food that comes in gets preferentially turned into fat. It, oh, whenever it can. Yeah. So anything yeah. that's going to, that would normally be used to make ATP, it, there's a yeah. shunt. It actually yeah. shunts that energy. It, you know, it's like, a, you know, so the more you eat, the more fat you'll generate if you've yeah. activated this, if the ATP levels are low. And so this, you, you've, you've called it, Mickey, because this is why high fat foods can be bad. So yeah. there's this huge controversy in the literature. Is high fat good or bad? And mm -hmm. um, But the way it works is that the fructose drops the energy in the cell, and then whatever you eat gets turned into fat. And if you yeah. eat a high-fat diet with the fructose, it's much more effective at generating a lot of fat because one teaspoon of fat has twice the number of calories as a teaspoon of carbs. Yeah. And so in America, where there's a lot of fatty f foods, fats and a lot of foods, the fructose is, is kind of like the fire that sets off the this, this switch to store fat. And then you eat yeah. high fat diets and you gain weight incredibly fast. So if I take an animal and I give it sugar, it's hungry because it's activated the switch. The energy levels are low. It's hungry. It wants to gain weight. But if you just give it carbs, it won't gain weight that fast because there's, it's not calorie dense. But if you give them sugar and high fat, now they've mm. got the, the fuel. They, they, they've set off the fire. Now they got the fuel to make a super big bonfire. So the, they gain fat really, really fast. So like if you're in Japan and you activate the switch by eating sugar or whatever, there are other ways to activate it. And then what happens is uh, you don't have the high fat food. You'll get you'll get a, the metabolic syndrome, but you won't have this massive obesity. Instead, they'll have a small belly, but they still are insulin resistant, diabetic, fatty liver and so forth. So that's yeah. the, why that's the case. And it also explains this really interesting you know, thing that if you're on a 
low-carb diet. And, you know, a lot of your listeners, I think, are probably on low-carb diets. And if you're on a low-carb diet, you're not getting the, you know, the dietary sugars. You're not eating sugar. So you're, you're not activating the switch very well. And so uh, now you're on a high fat diet. You're not going to gain weight <laughs> because yeah, yeah. because no, I, it's mm. it's cal it's calories. But you're you know you know how to regulate it. Yeah, it's so interesting, Rick. So a couple of thoughts. Like when we talk about um, just a high carb diet and the impact, like just eating carbohydrate can have on blood sugar levels and blood sugar regulation of that sort of spike in glucose and then it drops as insulin sort of stores away nutrients like. A lot of the energy crash that people experience, we often only refer to it as a blood sugar regulation issue, but potentially it might also be an ATP yeah. generation issue. Do you think, like from well, a well, here, immediate energy? Yeah. So here's the thing. So you know, when I first uh, when we discovered that fructose was bad, you know, it was around 2006, and um, my technician and my well, actually. I, there was this, uh, several people, but one of them, the one that I'm thinking about most is, is an MD doctor who was working with me. Uh, and he had a son who had developed really bad fatty liver. And we were, mm. we're, we were finding that fructose was causing fatty liver. And, 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 you know, and we thought it was through this uric acid mechanism. So I, we, we did is we, t we found out that he was drinking a lot of soft drinks. So we had him just stop his soft drinks. And two months later, his fatty liver was resolved by ultrasound. Mm. Unbelievable. Mm. So, mm. Uh, so my friend said to me, Rick, why don't you write a book? Because you've got enough data that fructose is the culprit. And at that point, as you were saying, a lot of people were thinking fructose was good. So yeah. I wrote a book uh, called The Sugar Fix. 2008 was the yeah. first first book that promoted a low fructose diet. And I had all these people mm -hmm. calling me and saying, you know, this is amazing. I'm losing weight and I'm still able to eat a lot of foods. You know, I'm just kind of avoiding sugar. Uh, and wow, it, you're in high fructose corn syrup. And wow, this is great. But then I had a few people say, you know, uh, Dr. Johnson, I am still, I find that I can't get rid of uh, my weight by just dropping sugar. I have to reduce bread and rice mm. and potatoes. And I thought to myself, you know, it's, you know, there are a lot of people, it, it does seem like bread is fattening to me. You know, even for me, I was thinking, you know, mm. I, I, I don't seem to do well eating a lot of bread and uh, potatoes and stuff. So then uh, Miguel and Aspa, another doctor working with me, uh, we were talking about it one day and he said, you know, um, there, you know, the body can make fructose. And I was aware of this, but there is this uh, one chemical set of reactions where the where you can make fructose and it, you make mm. it from glucose. And um, and what we, what has to happen is that you have to have. Somewhat, it doesn't make it from glucose at normal glucose concentrations, but when glucose goes up, like in diabetes, then you can start mm. making fructose. And it would, it had already been shown that people with diabetes uh, have high fructose levels in their blood, even when they are not wow. eating fructose. And so, uh, you know, it was known that there was some production of fructose going on. So then we got this crazy idea. Maybe what happens when you eat bread and carbs and it, the ones that are high glycemic carbs might actually, when the, when you eat them, 
although it's not diabetes, but your glucose goes up, but only for a short while. So we, we don't call it diabetes. We call it transient hyperglycemia, transient rises mm. in glucose. But would that be enough to trigger the production of fructose? So what we did is we gave animals high glucose uh, constant, you know, we put glucose in their drinking water. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, according to the Johnson hypothesis, <laughs> we were originally we were not going to see obesity. But uh, now we were thinking we might. But it was unbelievable. The animals actually did become fat. They became diabetic. They became uh, all the features of metabolic syndrome. And then what we did is we gave the glucose to animals that could not break down fructose. So they could still produce insulin and all that. And when we did that, we found that when we gave glucose to animals uh, and they got the metabolic syndrome, their fructose levels were high in their blood mm-hmm. and in their liver. And we found that when we blocked fructose metabolism, we could really have a dramatic effect on obesity, insulin resistance, fatty liver. I mean, it didn't completely block it, but it was very, very significant. And then we go, oh, wow. It isn't just that when you eat high glycemic carbs, you're stimulating insulin and insulin's making you fat. Really, it's the fact that the glucose is being converted to fructose in your body. And recently, a a group just published a study showing that uh, you can make uh, the equivalent of a a, a whole soft drink, a can of Coke uh, in terms of the fructose. We make that in our bodies when we eat, you know, high glycemic foods. So... We're making fructose, uh, and we can make a lot of fructose. And it's probably uh, how these high glycemic carbs are working. And uh, so, boom, it's not just sugar. Yeah. So, Rick, what sort of quantity would someone need to consume at any one time to have these deleterious effects? Or is it cumulative over time? And I guess I ask that question because a lot of the research studies look like high quantities of fructose. And some of the critique I hear is people don't eat that in real life. So, you know, what are the considerations that, that you think of there? Well, there's, there's, uh, there's several layers to your question. So the very first one is that it's all about the concentration of fructose that's seen by the the liver. And we, we actually figured out that it was really the liver where that's kind of the uh, site where everything happens. A lot of it happens there. There's also the brain too, but the liver is a really major site. So when you eat Um, fructose, first of all, you have to absorb it through the intestine, and then it has to get to the liver. So uh, it turns out the intestine can kind of eliminate like four or five grams of fructose, and it just eliminates, it turns it to glucose, and that's it. So it's, it's, there's no danger. For example, if you eat a single fruit that has like four or five grams of fructose, there's no, no problem because the, the intestine will, will deactivate it. It's really when you eat like a, a dessert, uh, a, a soft drink where you're taking a large amount in a sh- of fructose in a short period of time that you can overwhelm the intestine and then it gets to the liver where you activate the switch. Um, you can also activate the switch with high glycemic carbs and, and there you can do it just by raising the glucose in your in your liver and blood, but it can really vary how you do it. So for example, 
If you use a continuous glucose monitor, you can measure your glucose. And if you eat a slice of bread, some people's glucose will go up a lot and some won't go up much at all because there's individual Mm. variation. And obviously, the people where it goes up a lot, those are the ones at risk of producing the most fructose. But here's another trick. Even in a person who is sensitive, if you put things like avocado on the bread, uh, you can largely block that rise in glucose. So then you can eat the bread and and probably not as much of it's going to be converted to fructose. So it's a a little bit about um, how you eat it. And here's another one. Mm. If you give a soft drink in five minutes, the concentration of fructose is huge. And we did this with apple juice and it just floods the liver and you get this big activation of the switch. And we did this in people. But if you give the apple juice over an hour, it it kind of trickles into the liver and you get a much uh, milder activation of the switch. So it's not just about the amount, it's about the concentration, it's how how you eat it, it's whether or not you mix it with other foods, if it's got fiber. So there's all these different factors. But you also raised the question of what was brought up in the literature. And in the literature, a lot of the high fructose corn syrup industry will say, hey, in order to create metabolic syndrome in a mouse or a rat, you have to give it like 60% of its food as fructose. And that's not realistic. That's not what we see in people. And it's true that if you put fructose in the food for a mouse, it, it, you have to give like 50%, 60% of the food as, as sugar or fructose to really get the effect, okay? But remember that the mouse... Uh, and the rat, they have an enzyme called uricase, and that enzyme keeps their uric acid levels really low. So their uric acid levels are low, and when they eat fructose, they that low uric acid goes up a little bit and triggers the switch, but it takes a lot of fructose to really activate it like big time so that they get obese in just a few weeks. Cool. So uh, it, humans had a mutation in, in uric acid uric acid metabolism. So we lost that enzyme uricase millions of years ago. And so we have higher uric acids. And when we eat fructose, we get a big bump in our uric acid levels. And so the way we proved that this was the mechanism is we took normal animals and we inhibited their uricase. And when we did, then even small amounts of fructose were able to induce the metabolic syndrome. And also the whole works, you know, fatty liver, insulin resistance. So yeah. you you could make an animal very sensitive to fructose if you inhibited uricase. And then I was really lucky, Mickey. I ran into this uh, guy who is a scientist, uh, wonderful man, Eric Gaucher, who uh, was able to resurrect the extinct uricase gene. Uh-huh. And when we did that, we could actually do really cool studies where we were able to show that the uricase that uh, our ancestors had actually reduced our ability to make fat yep. from uh, from sugar, fructose. But when we lost that gene, we became much more sensitive. So we actually were able to prove it, uh, you know, elegantly by resurrecting the, the actual enzyme. So I feel very comfortable in saying to you that humans are extremely sensitive to sugar. We had a mutation that occurred. 15 million years ago that made us very sensitive to fructose. And that's why, uh, the, you know, the high fructose corn syrup companies, when they say, hey, you know, it's not fair to compare it. The rat has to eat so much. 
Yes, the rat does have to eat so much, but I can make the rat eat a lot less if if we do the same thing to it that happened to us. So I hope that helps answer that. And, you know, and then I just kind of tell you, it was kind of one of the more fun stories in my career is when, when I realized that this mutation occurred and that it made us more sensitive to the effects of sugar. You know, it really raised the question, why did the mutation occur? And um, yes. I started reading about it. And it was it occurred during a time when our ancestors almost went extinct. There was this mm. global cooling that occurred 15 million years ago that wiped out 70 percent of all species. And or, I'm sorry, 30 percent of all species. And our ancestors were almost one of the ones that didn't make it. And yeah. um, there's a world expert on those ancestors. His name's Peter Andrews. He's at the Museum of Natural History in London. And I tracked him down. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I reached out to him. I flew to London. Uh, I met with him at the museum. Uh, and we had a wonderful discussions. And we ended up writing some papers together uh, because uh, the mutation occurred right then at a time when these apes were starving. And he actually had evidence that these ancestral apes were starving. They get these like rings around on their teeth that of enamel, enamel hypoplasia, they call mm. it, but it's basically from seasonal starvation. What happened was as it got cooler, they didn't have any food for the winter and they were starving during the winter. And so they had to activate their switch stronger. And the way they could do that was to mutate that uricase. Um, and when that happened, I mean, it happened probably by accident, of course, but when it happened, it was a natural selection advantage. And that's why all humans, as well as the great apes, mm. we all have the same mutation. We cannot, uh, we have higher uric acid levels. And so uh, we're more sensitive to the effects of sugar. Yeah. So the, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic is partly uh, due, partly due to the fact that we're eating so much bad, you know, we have so much access to sugar and high glycemic carbs, but it's also because of a genetic mutation that occurred yeah. uh, 15 million years ago. Yeah, and in fact, I remember reading that about uricase when I was um, doing some teaching for students, talking about things that occur in the past that occur from a, a advantageous perspective, as you say, survival selection, uh, but now sort of work against us in terms of our, our health. Rick, your you mentioned the rats um, and the you know feeding them particular diets, and, and actually you didn't mention this. But this is what I thought of when you're talking about rats fed a high fat diet or people on high fat diets. What I've seen in the literature is that when they are comparing rodent models of diets and use a high fat diet, they're often using a type of chow that is high fat, but also actually high sugar. And All right. Yeah, so the standard, yes. yeah, it's sort of so, like... So, yeah, let me, uh, yeah, so we did a study on this, actually. So, um, so for example, we fed, uh, yeah, when they say high-fat diet, often it's high-fat, high-sugar. Mm. And so we wanted to know what happens when you just give a high-fat diet with no sugar, no fructose. Yeah. And we gave animals a lard diet, and they didn't get fat at all. Mm. They did not gain weight. Yeah, but then we gave fructose... To make them um, hungry, we actually it induces a thing called leptin resistance. So normally, yeah. leptin is this hormone 
that tells you when to stop eating. And uh, when you give fructose to animals, they become resistant to leptin. So normally, if you if an, you, the way you can prove it is you take an animal and you inject it with leptin. Mm. If you inject an animal with leptin, they're going to reduce their food intake by 50% for the next 24 hours. Mm. But if they're leptin resistant, they'll just keep eating. Mm. And when you give fructose, they, they initially they're leptin sensitive. But after a while, it takes it, you know, it takes a few weeks to a month or so. But then they become resistant to the effects of leptin. And then when you give them leptin, they just keep eating. So once the animal becomes leptin resistant, then when you give it lard, they become fat very, very quickly. Mm. In fact, we did this really cool study where we first gave fructose to make them leptin resistant. And then we removed the fructose and now we gave them the lard and then they gained the weight. So you didn't even have to have the fructose around uh, to make them gain weight once they're leptin resistant. It, the, the leptin resistance just was enough to keep driving weight gain because they couldn't yeah. control their appetite. Yeah. But, you know, that, that goes away after a few weeks. If you go off fructose after two or three weeks, you start regaining your ability to regulate your appetite. And, mm. I, you know, when we, when we realized that, we, I had this insight too because the, the great thing about like the low-carb diets and the, you know, the old Atkins diet is that they, there's an initial two-week period where it's really stringent and uh, you can't eat really much c- carbs at all. Mm-hmm. And it's during that two-week, I call it rebooting because it allows that leptin resistance to go away. And it also decreases, you know, the more sugar you eat, the more you absorb it because it turns on the transporters. And it takes about two weeks to turn that down, too. So it's really a great system. You know, this uh, low-carb diet is a very effective way to to turn off um, your sensitivity to sugar. And even things like craving of sugar starts to go down with a, you know, following a two-week carb restriction. So Mm -hmm. this kind of rebooting every now and then is probably a really good idea. Yeah. I'm just thinking about gout, actually, right now. So for someone who experiences painful gout, that arthritic condition, and they've been told to, to stay off alcohol, stay off meat, and potentially to stay off sugar, I believe that they're being told that now. I don't think that was always the case. Would they benefit from going lower carbohydrate in general? Yeah. By the way, I, I love the way you're thinking, Mickey. You're, you're really quite a, you know, a deep thinker here. So I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and all these questions you're giving are just so insightful. So uh, I would love, you know, so honestly, um, I have chapters on on all this in my book. Yes. Nature wants us to be fat. Uh, and But I can kind of give you the lowdown. For sure, the, the principal drivers of gout are sugar, high fructose corn syrup, sugars, soft drinks. There's some, a lot of people who cakes. A lot of people will tell you that if they eat sweet food, they can feel that twinge of gout. But you can also get it from really high purine foods. And it turns out, here's a really interesting thing. It turns out we have a receptor for the purine foods, mm-hmm. uh, a taste bud. So there's five tastes. Um, you know, there's sweet and sweet is really to help find foods that have sugar and fructose that will help you store fat. This was a evolutionary desire to be able to 
to be able to make sure that you can find foods that can help you when, when food shortage is, is pending. So sweet. Salt turns out to be a really interesting one, too. It's something that we desire, and we can talk about that in a bit. And it's involved with the switch as well. And then there's bitter and sour, which really we're taught to try to teach us not to eat foods that might be poisonous or toxic. But then, uh, then there's a fifth taste, and that taste is called umami. Mm, it's delicious. And umami is a delicious <laughs> flavor. I love umami foods. Uh, its nickname is savory, yeah. and umami is actually a Japanese name, as you can tell. Mm. And um, it's it turned out that umami is the from a a flavor from an, a specific amino acid called glutamate, mm. and it's it's enhanced like tenfold by nucleotides. And the specific ones are IMP and AMP. Now, it turns out that IMP and AMP are directly in line with this uh, energy depletion pathway. And uh, surprise, surprise, if you give IMP or AMP to animals, they get obese and develop metabolic syndromes. Mm -hmm. But here's what's amazing. Glutamate also gets converted to uric acid in the body and we, we actually can show that glutamate can cause obesity in animals, and you can block it by blocking uric acid. And it turns out that the foods rich in glutamate and IMP and AMP, these are exactly the same foods that we say are rich in purines. Mm. So it probably turns out that this taste bud was really to identify foods that might help us raise our uric acid. Oh, interesting. By, and uh, so, that, so there's an actual link. Now... Here's the good news, because I know you, Mickey, you just said it. I love umami. Yeah. And I love umami. And and the fantastic bit of good news, because most of this sounds bad, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, it's all about dose and concentration. Mm. So when you eat sugar, the average person's eating 70 grams of sugar a day. Mm. But the average person's only eating like four or five grams of glutamate a day, if that. Yeah. So even though on a gram for gram basis, umami, one gram of glutamate is worse than one gram of sugar, we're not eating that much umami. Yeah. So it turns out that it's a minor player in driving obesity. Yeah. And uh, it, it's also, a, but it's a modest player in driving uric. I mean, it can drive up gout mm. for sure. But uh, you really have to hit a have a fairly significant meal. So, um, so it turns out that beer has the most umami of all oh. because um, the yeast extract is just very uh, uh, a lot of nucleotides. And so when you eat, when you drink beer, you're getting a big dose. It's sort of like a soft drink because the alcohol also breaks down into uric acid. And so it turns out. That um, alcohol, uh, beer is a, a great way to precipitate gout, mm. and it's a great way to activate the switch as well. So it's like a soft drink. So mm. at the beer belly, there are these people who, who love beer. They tend to get a little abdominal obesity. They get uh, hypertensive. They get fatty liver. Their triglycerides go up. Guess what? That's the metabolic syndrome. Yeah. We just we need to just recognize that it's the same thing. But anyway. Um, you can also get uh, from some foods like shrimp, you know, if you eat a lot of shrimp or caviar or, you know, really rich shellfish, mussels, uh, crab, 
you know, this these kinds of foods can also raise uric acid and probably can cause obesity if you eat a lot of them independently of sugar. Mm. But most most umami foods, like uh, you know, there's a little bit in blue cheese mm-hmm. and and gorgonzola and Caesar salads and. You know, you're not going to get that much umami from there to really activate, you know, the switch very much. I mean, if you probably, I mean, if you ate a Caesar salad at every meal and, uh, you know, with anchovies, well, you know, it might get you. <laughs> but but um, in general, uh, you know, sugar is a really powerful way to do it. Beer is a powerful way to do it. Uh, processed red meats, not so much natural red meats, but processed red meats tend to raise uric acid a bit because the processing releases the glutamates and can make it very flavorful. Mm. But um, uh, but anyway, so bottom line is the best way if you have gout, what do you do? Well, you drink a lot of water. Uh, you try to reduce your sugar. You should reduce your salt, too, and we can talk about that. Mm. But you should reduce your salt. There's a very strong association of gout with hypertension. And, you know, so reduce sugar and salt. Drink a lot. And not uh, vegetables that are not high glycemic. Almost all vegetables are good. Just avoid or reduce. You can't avoid. But reduce your intake of potatoes, rice, cereals, um, bread. Mm-hmm. and sugar okay. those are like the big five yeah you know no that's great uh, yeah <laughs> um so rick for people who aren't suffering from or or don't have gout then would they just therefore make a decision to either drink the beer or have the processed meat and don't do it in one meal is that what you're saying yeah if you want to stay healthy then the question is you know there's so many foods that can activate the switch. Do we ever allow ourselves to drink a beer or to have a piece of chocolate cake? And, you know, I mean, so uh, the, the, the reality is that the, if you're activating the switch all the time, you are definitely going to get obese. Mm. Um, uh, but if you recognize that, you know, the average person who's obese is eating, I mean, the average person is eating like 70 grams of sugar mm. a day. It d- doesn't mean that you can't eat 10 or 15 grams of sugar a day. Um, and, you know, that's going to be cause much less activation of the switch than if you're eating uh, 100 grams a day. Yeah. And so there's a, a bit of wisdom uh, that we need to to apply to a healthy living. So um, I don't know, Mickey, do you have children? I, I'm a stepmom. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One so, of them is so, a great eater, like very healthy. She's, you know, at, at uni though. So she's a uni student. Uh, and the other one, Pop-Tarts, Frosties. There you go. But I mean, like on birthdays, you'll, will you have a slice of birthday cake? Yeah. It's like, yeah, of course. So, you know, it's it's the same thing. You know, we we shouldn't be so stringent that that we completely eliminate sugar or mm. things like this. Uh, I mean, you you can do it, but, you know, we do have the taste buds for it. And, uh, you know, our species does like it. But, um, you know, uh, we, we, we need to do is, you know, like if you have a weight problem, you know, it really makes sense to try to avoid sugar if you can. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a low-carb diet is a, is a good, good way to approach it. Intermittent fasting is a great way to approach it. But, uh, you know, 
we also is also we only live once, so we we need to keep in mind uh, what what is you know healthy nutrition and decide for ourselves you know how much you're going to allow yourself to eat of of these foods. Yeah. So I love shrimp. Uh, I love lobster. Uh, I'll eat them occasionally for sure. I know that uh, if I eat a lot of them, uh, it's maybe not so good for me. Mm. So, you know, I try to not overdo it. Yeah, Um, yeah. But I think that's, you know, in my book, I go through what I think is a very healthy diet for people who are uh, in balance. And then I also have a separate diet for those who are overweight and how to lose the weight. And, um, one of the big things that I've learned and uh, kind of came out of the study with the uric acid and blood pressure, we found that there was something that could make you, you know, uric acid raise the blood pressure, but then the kidney uh, damage caused the high blood pressure to persist. And the same thing kind of goes with diabetes. Initially, uh, there's something that makes you resistant to insulin, but over time, we start seeing damage to the islets themselves that make insulin, and, and then you become permanently diabetic. And there's now data suggesting that this is all true, also true in obesity, that initially, you know, this switch or uh, which I believe it's the switch makes you obese. But over time, then the mitochondria get damaged. And once they get damaged, then it's very hard to uh, lose weight, even if you stop activating the switch. Yeah. And so one of the things that I've been really interested in and I talk a lot about in the book is the techniques for actually rejuvenating the mitochondria and yeah. the, the techniques for for reversing some of the the, se- the secondary damage that occurs after activation of the switch. And so what you want to do is you want to you want to block the activation of the switch, but you also want to stimulate the recovery uh, and and I think that doing that double approach, it's possible to cure obesity. I yeah. believe we can cure obesity and that it's possible to to reverse uh, early diabetes, which we already know we can do. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of is, is using these techniques. And um, one of the most important ones is exercise. Yeah. And um, it's not that you're exercising to lose weight. You have to exercise a huge amount to burn, you know, a lot of calories. Uh, and so what, when we're exercising, what we're really doing is we're trying to condition our mitochondria. And uh, certain types of exercise can actually make the mitochondria grow back. And so like if you knock down because you've been uh, overweight, let's say you're you're listening to this podcast and you're going, oh my God, Dr. Johnson says that once I've been o- obese for t- 10 years, I'm not going to be able to, to get my weight back and, and eat normally again. Uh-uh. I think that you can. Yeah. And uh, the trick is to regenerate those mitochondria. The easiest way is to exercise uh, a little, you know, 40 minutes, three times a week. Yeah. Uh, and to do what we call zone two exercise, where you try to raise your heart rate up to the point where you're not accumulating lactic acid. So if you don't measure the lactic acid yourself, then what you want to do is you want to just uh, be exercising enough so that you you can still talk to the person next to you, but it's a little bit difficult. Mm. That puts you right in that zone too. And when you do that, you'll start rebuilding your mitochondria. You can also do it other ways like green tea. Yeah. Um, 
uh, can stimulate mitochondria. Uh, dark chocolate can do that. Uh, vitamin C. And even things like intermittent fasting and uh, low-carb diets, they can actually have some benefits too. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, but uh, I think most of us who, if we're struggling with weight, uh, this is something we have to consider doing is not just picking the right foods, but trying to get our energy levels back and yeah. get those ATP levels uh, up in our body. And once that happens, if you have really good mitochondria, then suddenly you can eat much more food than you could before without gaining weight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that, Rick, because it really helps sort of connect those cellular processes that occur when someone's uh, struggling with regards to their weight and how you can actually change your physiology to help become more resilient in this food environment because let's face it the food environment is is rubbish exactly you know probably one of the simplest things we can do to help people is uh is to try to reduce uh the amount of food you eat that's from processed foods or at least learn to read the labels because a lot of times they're injecting sugar and salt and all kinds of bad things into the food and yeah and there's often high high salt and high sugar content high high fructose corn syrup content yeah. uh in the foods rick what about cold thermogenesis would you do that for your mitochondria yeah okay so there's another way to help burn fat and that is uh by doing things where you try to make the mitochondria less efficient or where they, uh, instead of making ATP, they, they, they do this thing where they produce heat. Mm. And uh, when you uh, go into the cold, uh, the mitochondria, can you can do these things where you can try to get the mitochondria to what we call uncouple, where instead of making ATP, they start making heat. Mm. And, um, you know, the it, it was shown a long time ago that... Um, that there were mutations that occurred in the early uh, adventurers that crossed the Bering Strait, the Native Americans, and that a lot of them developed mutations where they could uh, generate heat more, and that might have helped them help them survive when they crossed the Bering Strait. But now, when they're living in hot environments, um, that may increase their risk for heat-associated complications. Mm. So there's sort of, you know, there there is this natural thing where people vary in how much heat they generate in response to things like cold. But this cold, you know, thermogenesis is a, is a means for trying to burn energy or, or convert energy to heat. It, it's a way, theoretically, that you could lose weight, mm. you know, because it will block the storing of energy yeah, because yeah. you're going to convert it to heat. I, I You know, I think it's... a it's another technique, uh, and it probably does work. I think that in, in some respects, it's better to block the process of storing energy as opposed to uh, generating heat just because I work. You know, when the, first, when the medications first came out in the early 1920s, they had a medicine that did this. But there were a number of deaths from um, people developing super high fevers with the medication. Mm. And so I'm I'm not a big fan. I gave um, I was using this medicine a few years ago to to study how heat how body temperature can affect kidney damage, and yeah. we and there's a lot of people working out in the heat, you know. And so I gave some of these uncoupling agents to animals that were um, 
effectively working in the heat, and I made their kidney disease a lot worse. Oh, interesting. So, you know, in general, in general, I'm not sure that drugs that do this would be so good. I do think, you know, cold-induced thermogenesis, like, like you know, jumping in an ice bath and yeah, things yeah. like that, uh, probably work a little bit, and they, they, they turn on this brown fat, you know, that yeah. helps to uncouple the energy and but um, in general, I think there are better ways to do it. Like the ones that you describe that in your book. Yeah, yeah. honestly, it's uh, it's better because it doesn't come with those complications. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, Rick, a couple of things I want to chat about. Um, I'm mindful of your time, but one is the form with which fructose is delivered. So, and in New Zealand, um, you know, we have soft drinks which don't have high fructose corn syrup, but they have sucrose, which the chemical makeup right. of them aren't isn't actually that different, is it? Yeah, so we can talk about that just for a minute. So yes, yeah, so high fructose corn syrup is a mixture of fructose and glucose together. So it's you just take uh, liquid fructose and you take liquid gl- glucose and you mix them together in different ratios. And a sucrose, though, is one molecule mm. that consists of a fructose and a glucose that are bound together. So you, it, with, with table sugar, it's always half of it is fructose and half of it is glucose. Mm. Now, one thing about fructose is that when you give it alone, the absorption is a little bit variable, but it's the absorption is enhanced with glucose. So both sucrose and high fructose corn syrup are more potent than fructose alone. So the glucose helps the fructose get absorbed. Plus, as we talked earlier, the glucose gets converted to fructose too. So the sugar and high fructose corn syrup are more potent than fructose alone for all those different reasons. Um, So that's one, one thing. So now when it comes to the two of them, uh, my friend Michael Gorin has shown, and he has a book called Sugar Proof, which is a great book, um, but he uh, has shown that although the soft drink industry says that they that when they use high fructose corn syrup, they're putting 55% fructose and 45% glucose in a drink, that often when you get by a fountain drink, it's like 65% fructose and 35% oh. glucose. So they, they, what's happening is that when you can mix it, it's very easy to increase the ratio so forth because you're mixing it. Mm. And so uh, when we did clini- we did a clinical study where we gave a soft drink that just had sucrose in it and we compared it to a soft drink that contained fructose or high fructose corn syrup, but it was the classic 5545. Mm. And when we gave it, uh, we got a higher fructose blood level with the high fructose corn syrup because there was a little more fructose in it. And the blood pressure was higher in the people and the uric acid was higher. So even though there was only a 5% difference, uh, 55 versus, you know, sucrose is 50-50, we found that the high fructose corn syrup, you know, had a little more fructose and was a little worse. Mm. But then we wanted to know what happens if you just give fructose and glucose mixed together in a 50-50 ratio. So it's the same thing as sucrose, except Mm. it's not bound. And our theory was that when we gave the two uh, where they weren't bound together, that the absorption might be faster. And remember how we talked about how fatty liver is driven by the concentration of fructose? And so when we fed the animals the exact same amount of, of, of fructose, but one got it as 
free fructose and free glucose, like high fructose corn syrup. And the other one got sucrose. The ones that got the free fructose and free glucose got much more fatty liver. So, it, you know, they probably had a higher concentration of fructose in their liver. And that explains it because, you know, the sucrose has to be broken down in the gut first. Mm. And then the fructose and glucose are absorbed. Mm. So there are differences. Um, I truly believe high fructose corn syrup is worse mm-hmm. than sugar, mm-hmm. if you have the choice between the two. But uh, but on the other hand, they're both are very potent at activating the metabolic switch. Um, this this metabolic syndrome uh, it, it's induced by this biologic switch. So I would uh, I would kind of view them equivalently, you know, equivalently bad. But it is true. High fructose corn syrup really is um, probably is uh, a little bit more uh, capable of inducing obesity and fatty liver than uh, than than uh, sugar. Yeah, and it's you know in your book you're so good at delineating between uh, food sources of fructose. So and and drinks for example. So the dried fruit and the fruit juice. Ideally, we would minimize these in our diet compared to say whole fruit and and things yeah. like that you know i really love yeah, there's how a you huge huge difference there's a huge difference and i also have tables on the types of yes. fruits and which ones are healthier than other ones yeah um, but in general you know we did a study natural fruits alone you don't get that much fructose with natural fruits alone and especially if you only eat like one or two fruit and they have fiber and vitamin C and a lot of really good things that help counter it. But when you make fruit juice, you, you're getting all these fruits together. So now you get a big load of fructose mm. and dried fruit, unfortunately, gets rid of a lot of the good stuff, but leaves the sugar behind. That's yeah. why it tastes so good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's just not, it's just not the, uh, I mean, if you're going to go mo- mountain climbing and it's, it's your gorp where you've got nuts and a little bit of dried fruit, that's probably good for, you know, when you're out there, you know, uh, exercising intensely for hours. That's true. But, yes. You call yeah, it gorp. But, but, we call it scroggin here in New Zealand, but scroggin. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. But what is gorp? Great outdoor something or other. I I can't remember. I don't know. But, but, it, but it's know. we. You know, it's got little you know M and M's and peanuts and raisins and. Yeah, it's got a lot of sugar in it. (laughs) I would not recommend it, well, you know, to eat gorp while you're watching TV. No. Okay, but if you're up hiking the mountains or, yeah, then it's fine. Yeah, and in fact, I was just flying back from Australia yesterday and they they bring around the, the, for the people who order the meals, you've got your meals and they've got the drinks carts and I was just seeing all these people sitting down to big paninis which are you know big bread sort of rolls um with mm. apple juice and orange juice Ooh. and i mean <laughs> if there was anything which i that clinically i wish would just like be removed from the food um sort of system it would be juice and soft drinks actually yeah apple juice is uh, pretty high in sugar yeah, it really is yeah i know yeah, try to avoid it if you can and in fact carrot juice and beetroot juice Equally, I've seen 50 grams of sugar in just yeah, natural yeah. sort of juices. So I think that's yeah, a real that's a area great point. Yeah, where people sort of go wrong. Um, finally, Rick, you've mentioned salt a number of times. I'm a massive lover of salt. Um, can you talk to me about the relationship between salt and uric acid and what we need to yeah. consider there? 
Yes. Okay. So uh, very uh, quickly. So it turns out that um, salt uh, is another way you can activate the biologic switch. It's, it's just a crazy thing. But when you eat salt, the concentration of salt initially goes up in your blood. And that's why you get thirsty when you eat salty food. When the salt concentration goes up in the blood, it triggers the enzyme that converts glucose to fructose. So the mm -hmm. enzyme gets activated. Now, if you're eating carbs at the time, especially a lot of carbs, when you activate that enzyme, then the carbs can be converted to fructose easier. So if you're eating salt uh, with uh, on potatoes like French fries, mm. the salt actually helps convert, activate the enzyme to convert those potatoes to fructose. So salted French fries are going to be more dangerous than unsalted fries because the salt kind of gives a double whammy along with the elevation in glucose that it comes from eating the potato. So the elevation in glucose will trigger the switch to, to make fructose, but the salt accelerates it. Mm. So um, now if you're on a low-carb diet and, and, and or you're not eating a lot of high glycemic carbs, you, so you, you don't, you're not eating bread, rice, and potatoes, and or not so much, and then you eat salt on a low-carb, then there's not as much glucose around to be converted to fructose. Mm. So like if you're on a low-carb diet, salt is not likely to make you fat because you don't have the glucose to convert to fructose. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a low-carb diet kind of protects you from the effects of salt, uh, just as it protects you from the effects of high glycemic carbs. Yeah. Oh. But salt can do it. When we give salt to animals, uh, it takes a lot longer for them to become fat. Mm. It's not immediate. So with, if I give sugar, they become fat in a month or two months. If I give them high glutamate foods, They'll get fat in a couple months. But if I give them salty foods, it takes like four or five months. It takes it's a longer process. But they get fat and diabetic on high salty foods. And people who are overweight tend to be on high on high salt yeah, diets. Yeah, yeah. And so the salt is probably the, you know, a catalyst to help uh, help them uh convert glucose and carbs to fructose. And in the wild, there are a lot of animals that seek out salt and it's actually sodium chloride that they seek out and they, you know, they'll find these, what we call salt licks. Do you, do you yes. call them salt yeah, licks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then like deer will, will lick the salt and there's some data showing that when those animals, when they do that, it actually helps them gain weight. And there's even some places, I believe there's a place in New Zealand actually, where they um, where they reported that if you um, give a little bit of salt, for example, to cattle or something, you can increase the uh, that it can increase the uh, productivity or the the amount of fat that the cattle get. Oh, amazing! So, um, so my my belief is that this uh, is another mechanism. When we give salt to an animal, though, even though we're activating the switch, we don't see a rise in uric acid in the blood. But when we look in the liver, we do see it, that rise in uric acid. So it's, it seems to be more specifically going on in the liver uh, rather than uh, the rest of the body. Okay. And so, so you make me feel a little bit disappointed, to be honest. Not you, but the <laughs> yeah. mechanism does. Because I do enjoy French fries with beer. 
post our conversation though, now I'm like, ah, it's like one of my favorite things to eat. And I'm just doing myself a big double whammy. So my question well, is- Well, you're, you're pretty skinny. So um, <laughs> you must be doing some other things uh, to keep yourself, I mean, it, are, are you're either not drinking beer and eating French fries as much as you're telling me, <laughs> or, um, or you have, uh, uh, you know, either some exercise regimen or something that you're doing that's keeping you really healthy. What, what, what is it? I'm curious. Yeah, actually, in fact, it will be that I'm not eating French fries every day, probably once a week with my beer. And the amounts I have are probably the equivalent of, well, I like a craft beer, Rick, and they tend to be higher in alcohol. <laughs> so, <I>, so, <laughs> so maybe I'm having one and a half to two beers at the time. However, if I was to exercise and deplete my glycogen stores, does that change that switch? So uh, if I'm then consuming potatoes, is that carbohydrate actually then going to be stored as glycogen or does that not override the switch? Oh yeah. So a lot of the carbs will, so the, the it isn't like the glucose is only going to fructose. The yeah. glucose is also going to glycogen. So like if you're a, a big athlete, a lot of athletes will uh, glucose low before, uh, you know, running a marathon or things like that. Uh, and the re or you know biking or something, and the reason is they want to have a good glycogen store in their liver and especially in their muscle. Um, and so uh, you know there, there's there's some benefits to glucose loading if you're like an athlete. Um, and so the potatoes uh, would help that. The the salt on it though would kind of try to get some of that glucose turned to fructose. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, remember, it was a survival pathway. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you're really uh, skinny, uh, you know, it's going to be helping put a little bit of uh, fat stores on you, uh, which is supposed to be good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's all about um, the amount, you know, who you are, what kind of exercise you're doing, um, you know, how often you're eating it. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. That's awesome, Rick. And do you know, I absolutely loved your book. I felt that, you know, you're, you know, as a scientist, you know, people, I always think scientists and doctors sort of run the risk of writing things in language that people don't quite understand, but you do such an amazing job of translating what you've learned over the last 20 years. Um, and that's just in this particular book, because I know obviously you've got you, you know, the fat switch and, and your other books, but yeah. you do a great job of being able Thank to translate you. it into language we understand, but you also give some really clear guidelines. And that is what I love about it. It's a really practical resource as well. So thank you so much you. for that. Thank you, uh, Mickey. It was, that's just great, really kind words of you. Yeah. I, I had a very good editor who helped me too, you know, and she would say, you know, can you explain this a little bit more or <laughs> I sometimes explain this a little bit less, <laughs> but, you know, but it was, it's wonderful having um, good editors and people who are, you know, giving me nice feedback on, uh, on how to try to explain a complicated subject in a understandable way. Yeah. Well, you've done a great job. And as I said, I've seen you present and you do equally um, a great job there. Rick, thank you so much for um, your time this morning or this afternoon for you. Uh, where can people find out more about how to get your book? Okay, well, um, I do have a website. 
Uh, it's called drrichardjohnson.com. Um, I do have, uh, you know, I, my book is available through uh, all the regular bookstores, and I do know that you can find it in New Zealand. Um, you know, Amazon, uh, other book venues, uh, but uh, th those are the main ones. I have an Instagram account uh, and a Twitter account. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Rick, Dr. Richard J. Johnson is my Instagram, for example. Awesome. Um, That's fantastic. Um, thank you, Rick, for your time. And um, really look forward to seeing an opportunity, if there's one in the future, to see you present again in person, because that would be amazing. Thank you so much, Mickey. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Oh, it was really fun. team hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did you can tell he's such a great guy and he's so generous with his information and he's super genuine about people reaching out and chatting to him about all things metabolic health and I certainly recommend his books next week on the podcast I have the pleasure of chatting to Stephen Guianet who has written a book The Hungry Brain and we talk all about the role of the brain in terms of weight management until then though team you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head along to my website mickeywillardin.com Sign up to my recipe portal access, that's 12 bucks a month, to get a bunch of recipes, my emails, access to the private Facebook group. It is awesome. I actually just put a French toast recipe up. Or any one of my meal plans or book a consultation. That's mickeywillardin.com. All right, team, you have a great day. Talk next week. See ya. See ya.